everyone. Um, just a quick note that we had some sound issues while recording, and um, it's completely our fault because we didn't actually sacrifice an avocado this time. We were kind of hoping that we didn't need to do one every month, but apparently we kind of do. Um, so there's some sound issues, there's some editing issues. Just go with it, and we're working on fixing those issues. Some of those solutions involve produce. Okay, on with the show. Good morning, Anglophies. Good, Good morning, morning, Kevin. Kevin. <laughs> Sorry, what did I miss? Everything. Anglophies. Gettle's gone. Alina, are you fake texting? It's super important. <laughs> oh, I might as well just growl, that'd be about it. I have failed the sisterhood. I hear an awful lot of judgment in your voice. We're not your judge. <laughs> okay, well, that was a credible attempt. <laughs> Time delay. <laughs> <laughs> Alright. Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode 18 of Anglophies, where we are joined by Made of Fail executive producer Kevin O'Shea, who gives us the internet space to bring you all of our demented ramblings. This is, this is my contractually obligated appearance, so. <laughs> yeah. I mean, hi! <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we're here to talk about all of the stuff from our childhoods that made us into the nerds we are today. I'm Raiden. I'm Alina. And I'm Kaylee. And that's Kevin. Hi! We're all here! Yay! Um, is there any housekeeping we wanted to do before we jumped in? Hannibal started. It's been amazing. You should all watch it. Um, I heard UK is doing well in the Paralympics. We are. I think one person is winning all of the medals for us. So that's nice. <laughs> and the Russian news media tells me that they actually sold more tickets to the Paralympics than the main event Olympics. Which is brilliant. Yeah. Uh, Gus, Gus Kenworthy's dogs are finally in the U.S. So I, that covers all the important stuff from last month. I think it does. <laughs> um, so I've, I've been really looking forward to this topic. I emailed my mom and asked her what she remembered from my childhood of what I was super, super into as a little me. And you promised us that the answer will shock us. Quite possibly. Um, and the the answer is Cinderella. Huh. I was super into Cinderella and also Annie, and I'm going to get into Annie, because um, I have a lot of things to say about Annie, but I would swan around the house about how I was so overworked. Oh, Cinderella, Cinderella, night and day, Cinderella. And when mom would ask me to do things like help put the silverware away. Apparently at once, once at three or four years old, I told her that she should have adopted somebody to do that for her. Oh! <laughs> now, I don't... I don't actually have a memory of this conversation, but that absolutely sounds like something I would say. And I don't know what she said in response to that, but... What I would say to my kid 
my hypothetical kid is no silly that's why i have you <laughs> but we already did that yeah we already did it we already have a small person for that uh you you literally had a head fantasy where you were the red-headed stepchild <laughs> yes before i had red hair i was very very blonde <laughs> So why was it such a surprise for you that Cinderella was such a sort of big influence for you? Um, I think it doesn't surprise me because I remember that. Um, I think that it might surprise other people knowing who I am and what I'm into now. That as a small blonde child, I was totally a princess girl. Totally a princess girl. And... So to all of those parents who are like, no, I don't let my children watch Disney Princess. I'm keeping them out of the princess phase. It's like, get over it. It's not going to damage their psyche. It's not going to make them go, oh, I need a man to come rescue me. Mm -hmm. Just chill the fuck out, for Christ's sake. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty dresses are fun, too. It's okay. Here, here. It's okay. Also, we're going by the Disney Cinderella film. It's just generally a really beautifully made film. Yeah. Exactly. Alright, so uh, we've actually created a little bit of an outline to ourselves so it's not just demented ramblings because we want to behave in front of Kevin. The Why? management has left the office and is roaming the halls. <laughs> Look busy! <laughs> uh, but we've separated our uh, early geeky influences into basically the media they come from and decided to uh, just go with that, with those groups. And we're, I'm actually, um, I'm really optimistic about this episode because we come from some different backgrounds, so we should have some very varied responses to this. Exactly. Um, so let's start, we decided to start with the movies, and I'm going to assume this includes feature-length animation like Disney. Oh, yeah. For, for ease of reference, let's say they do. So the... T the movies, feature length animation that has influenced who we are. Uh, let's start on the other side of the pond with Kaylee. Well, in terms of movies, it was Disney all the way. I mean, the very first film I ever went to see, the very first, actually, I think it was the earliest memory I ever have in my life was going to see Aladdin at the cinema, which was my first cinema visit. And my grandmother had all the Disney movies on video. So with five grandchildren, we all were, you know, we had our favourites that we had to watch over and over again, and my favourite was The Great Mouse Detective, which we've talked about before, but it's brilliant, which also led to further influences later in my life. Uh, there's just something, I think, they, they, just because they do such good family entertainment, so it was one of those things where I could watch it and my parents were perfectly willing to watch it with me. They weren't going to be irritated to the back teeth with some of the more clawing um, children's entertainment out there. So I was never really a big princess fan. Like, I liked those films, but I never got into the whole princess thing that a lot of my friends did. My my playing in the playground thing was Power Rangers, not Disney princesses. <laughs> so, which is another big influence. Um, the biggest, that, that was actually the biggest influence in my life in terms of television. There were three TV shows that I was obsessed with when I was younger. One was, was Power Rangers. Um, the other one was Thunderbirds which was the big obsession of my early years from about four to seven. And the other one was a kid's show called Maid Marian and Her Merry Men, which is written by Tony Robinson from of Baldrick fame from Blackadder. And it is basically if someone had made a Blackadder TV show for kids. 
I, I've actually watched it recently, and it's really funny. It's basically what happens if Robin Hood is a really self-obsessed, narcissistic little jerk who's more obsessed with his hair than saving people, and his maid Marion was the real genius behind the operation. And it's really, it's it's very aimed at children, but it's also really funny no matter what age you are. And it's full of really daft songs, and it was really cool having this really interesting woman leading the day who got to boss around all the guys and be in charge and save the day. Which I think is one of the things that's really key when you're growing up as well, particularly if you're a British child in the 90s. And there wasn't a whole lot of that available, especially if it was British. We had a lot of American imports, we had a lot of weird French cartoons that had been badly dubbed into English. So that was the biggest thing for me. And because it involved occasionally kicking people in the shins. <laughs> Which I was never brave enough to do when I was little, but I liked watching other people do it. That's a Kaylee we know and love. <laughs> <laughs> All right, back to the other side of the pond, and let's have our guest of honor have a word. So, Kevin, movies oh. and uh, TV that formed you as a child. Well, um, before I get into that, or maybe possibly uh, well after, there's because uh, uh, I, I I hadn't actually split this up by genre. I had actually um, wanted to talk about the source of all of this, which is about 80% of, of all the different materials. And I've discussed this about uh, a couple times on Made to Fail, some of the earlier episodes about geek culture. Um, but the biggest influence as far as uh, how I grew up and how I grew up to be the, the, the way I was with the, the media and uh, everything is, was uh, my mother who has been a geek since as far back as she can remember as well. She used to watch uh, Star Trek uh, back when it was first run. Um, she would watch uh, Tom Baker, Doctor Who, with her dad uh, on, on Saturday mornings. Um, growing up, there was always... Uh, the Next Generation was uh, on first run. She didn't record that to watch it later. She always watched it right then when it was on. Uh, and and everything that she did, she did in a way to share it with uh, me and my uh, brother and my sisters. So we always, we always had a lot of different things growing up. Um, movies, uh, she uh, introduced us to uh, her favorite time travel movies right away. We always had Back to the Future going on when it was on TV. Uh, Indiana Jones was always a big one. Um, but my real geek awakening personally did not come about until summer of 1997 when the Star Wars special editions were, uh, released in theaters uh, for the 20th anniversary. And, uh, my mom took me to see, uh, Star Wars in the theater. It was a packed theater. And it was the first time that uh, I was in a theater where people were cheering at the events of, of things that were happening on screen and laughing loudly along. It was just such an amazing experience. And it kind of just paved the way for everything beyond that. So That was one that was a big influence on me as well. I mean, I have, I have my parents to blame for a lot. Not just in yeah. terms of my geek upbringing, but just a lot in general. <laughs> but um, my my mum is a big nerd for films from the 80s. You know, that was her. You know, my mum was a teenager in the 1980s. So 
all of the, like the Brat Pack movies, the Back to the Future films, Star Wars, not as much, but that was certainly something that her and my dad brought together for when I was growing up. Um, the Lost Boys is the one that I have basically watched once every couple of months since I was in my That's very early movie. teens because my mum is obsessed with that movie. It's a really good movie. It's a great movie. I've got no for that movie. My, my, par- my parents' way of watching a movie is they'll find a movie they really like and they'll just watch it whenever it's on. Like, I've seen Sherlock Holmes' Game of Shadows about 50 times since it's come out because every time it's on, my parents will watch it. <laughs> and my mum is now going to start doing that with the Jack Black film Bernie because she really likes that and she will now watch it every time it's on TV. So that's that's one of the reasons way I grew up watching films as well. My mum has a certain sort of about... 20 or so movies that she really, really loves and will watch over and over again. One of which was Some Like It Hot, the Billy Wilder movie with Marilyn Monroe. Mm, And the other one was Stand By Me, which is Will Wheaton, Mm. River Phoenix, Corey Feldman and Jerry O'Connell. And those are two of my favourite movies of all time now. Because it was one of those ones that my mum just sort of sat me down and said, you should watch this. I think you'll really like it. And you know, about 80% of the time I do like it. (laughs) Yeah, every... Pretty much everything that I've carried along with me has been um, given to me by my mother. She was the one who uh, uh, recorded the first episode of Farscape um, and uh, sat me down on a, week, uh, on a weekend and said, Hey, I saw this. I think this is absolutely something that you'd love. And uh, so she sat down and watched it with me, and it was uh, phenomenal. Uh, she, when I was homesick uh, from school one day, she... Um, rented labyrinth and uh yeah. showed that to me the first time <laughs> it so... wasn't my mother that introduced me to labyrinth it was my grandmother <laughs> my grandmother buys that dvd for everyone in my family now my, my cousin and his my oldest cousin now has two children one of whom is seven and the other one is going to be five this year so for christmas last year my grand bought the seven-year-old labyrinth on dvd it's great for me because I get to introduce her to who David Bowie is. Yeah. So you've got to build that in when they're young, you know? The gift of David Bowie in tight pants. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. She will appreciate it's it. It's so for more. many of us. Yeah. <laughs> um, Speaking of influences. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay, so the first movie that I saw in the theater, I'm. About 87% sure was Annie. It was either Annie or E.T. And E.T. scared the shit out of me. Um, but Annie... As it should have scared the shit out of you. It's a scary-ass movie. I maintain that. <laughs> There's nothing innocent about that movie. Yeah, exactly. And it starts with scary people running through the woods with guns. And there's lights and they're shouting and it's dark. And it's kind of traumatic to see on a big screen when you're four years old. I'm just saying, it scared the shit out of me. I haven't actually enjoyed that movie ever. Ever. Sorry. That's like that's like me with The Witches, which is one of my sister's favorite movies <laughs> growing up, and I still cannot finish watching. Well, I don't know. To if, this day. <laughs> I don't know if I told you guys the story, but my my brother, when he was a little kid, was terrified by a like a children's theater play version of The Snow Queen, and he can't even read that to his kids. Yeah, so you, traumatized. Did, you did mention that. <laughs> Childhood trauma. Yeah, there might be a future episode where I talk about my childhood trauma involved with Dracula. Um, Teaser. Anyway, but Annie, I did see in the theater, and I have very distinct memories of the the red velvet curtain opening over the theater screen. 
And I loved that movie. I profoundly loved that movie. We had the Broadway soundtrack, which was one of the many um, tapes that we would listen to on our many, many road trips. So I knew all the words. When I was little, I had my mom make me orphan rags. I never liked the red dress. I thought it was kind of like, eh, it's a dress. My grandmother made me better dresses. But mom made me orphan rags. <laughs> assist with my swanning around the house and bemoaning my hard knock life. <laughs> you really just wanted to be oppressed as a child. I really didn't. I really did. I'm very. I was very melodramatic. Oh, very- now I know who you remind me of. What? Um, Catherine from Jane Austen's Northanger Abbey. There's that bit in the beginning where, like, <laughs> oh my god, that makes so much sense. <laughs> yeah, she was not a heroine because her parents weren't harsh with her. They gave her pocket money and wished her a pleasant trip. <laughs> All I'm thinking is it was Monty Python and the Holy Grail. You know, help, I'm being repressed. (laughs) Yeah. So my mom indulged these swanning around and overly melodramatic episodes fairly well, actually. I was still amazed that she let me grow up to adulthood. (laughs) Anyway, so Annie was my favorite movie of all time. And that's why I am so excited about the new version that is coming out. It's this year, right? The trailer was just released with Jamie Foxx's Daddy Warbucks and Kavansane Wallace as Annie. And it's modern and updated. And I can't wait. So excited to introduce a whole new generation of kids to help with their melodramatic swooning. It'll be fun. <laughs> Is it going to be a musical, this one? I haven't seen the trailer. It is a musical. Oh, the trailer is adorable. It's so cute. (laughs) So cute. And and it's, you know, little white girls had an Annie who looked like them. Now little black girls get to have an Annie that looks like them. I'm so excited. So excited. It's ridiculous how happy this makes me. But it does. So... But it's actually, it was actually the first stage musical I ever saw as well. They did a production of it when I was about nine or ten in the nearest theatre to my hometown. So it's never been a musical I've been especially enamoured with, was a lot I liked. But I do love that this is being updated for the modern audience and also for, you know, little girls of colour, and particularly with Kovangene Wallace, who's a wonderful actress, and I'm so glad she has a career. So thank you to Jay-Z and Will Smith for giving her that job, because they're producing it. And I believe that they are adding their own songs to the film, which I don't know how I feel about that. Oh, well, we all know what Jay-Z already did with Hard Knock Life, so... Yeah, I'll take it. I mean, there are some songs from, certainly from the <clears> musical, that <throat> I don't believe made it into the movie. Like, the one talking about how we get a new deal for Christmas, that's like, FDR is the greatest thing ever, and... There's I appreciate that musical so much more now that I'm older and realize <laughs> that it's basically this big, you know, like... We love unions and FDR and the left. It's like, why are there more like that? Yeah, so, like, that song needs to be updated. (laughs) Well, the the script is, uh, the screenplay has been partially written by Emma Thompson. Oh, well, no problem then. I have no concerns about this movie whatsoever. None. (laughs) I Well, except for Cameron Diaz. I'm choosing not to think about her. 
She's trying so hard. Really yeah. hard. Really hard. Like, yeah. you can smell how hammy that role is. <laughs> it's shit, I was, because the, they did it on Broadway recently, and the replacement for Miss Hannigan was Jane Lynch. Mm-hmm. I'm like, that would have been really awesome. Why isn't she in the movie? Yeah. Yeah. Don't worry. She won't be on it as often as Covangini is. That's all I care about. That's, that's the important part, is that, yes, it'll be fun. <laughs> it'll be so much fun. I'm so excited. So, yeah, that was my first movie, my favorite movie for a long, long time. Um, the The other musical that we listened to a lot in the car on these, these road trips was A Chorus Line. And I thought I knew all the words to a chorus line. It turned out to be the the first Broadway musical I saw in the theater. I had no idea what Dance Ten Looks Three was actually about until I had no idea that I'd been singing about plastic surgery enhancements. <laughs> But we all had that experience growing up with Greece and realizing just every single song in that movie is about sex. Like yes. every single woman. <laughs> there was a huge revival of, of Greece in the nineties when I was in primary school. So the you know, everyone was knew the words to it and all the dance moves and everyone had seen that film multiple times, of course I had as well. And I remember watching it when I was about thirteen or fourteen and by this time I'd seen Rocky Horror Picture Show, which is my family's favourite musical. And it sort of dawned on me, it was like Oh, that's what a pussy wagon is. Okay. <laughs> Ew, that's bad. <laughs> and they let us do that at school discos and everything. So, <laughs> But don't worry, you come out of your childhood perfectly fine. Exactly. I mean, as we keep saying, is when kids see something that they don't understand, they just sort of gloss over it. Mm-hmm. And then they find out what it's about later and go, oh my god, my whole life has been a lie. (laughs) But that's part of growing up. Don't shelter people from that. That is a necessary part of becoming an adult, is recognizing the the deeper themes and other things. Mm -hmm. Kids are surprisingly good at filtering out stuff. And filtering in most, you know, the good stuff and leaving out the crap. Yeah. For the most part, anyway. I, I, I like to think I was, but I don't really know. I really filtered in a lot of dark stuff. Which explains a lot about me right now. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, it's Scotland. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't really know where I was going with that, except that Having I Having start- just finished reading Under the Skin by Michelle Faber, in which it involves a, in the Scottish Highlands as its main setting, Yes, I know what it means when you say it's Scotland. (laughs) (laughs) Um, How about movies that you grew up with, Alina? Because I think the the whole Soviet film industry is not something that a lot of Westerners have much concept of. Well, um, unlike the, the rest of you... I didn't have the experience of, like, say, the first movie I saw in theaters because going to the theater wasn't as big a thing. The movie industry in the Soviet era was was really huge, but it really it was all about having those movies premiere on television, and often they were more like a miniseries. Uh, some of them were just movie, but they might have been two-parters. Uh, so it was all in the comfort of our own home, and 
Currently, the Russian movie industry has, I mean, it has suffered in the, the change of the regime, kind of like the money's left it. I don't know, the talent hasn't gone anywhere, but the ability to make good films has. But luckily, when I was growing up, we still had a fantastic movie industry. <laughs> um, there was a lot of fairy tales and like folk tales uh, adaptations, both the ones that were like 20 years older than I was and made in the 70s and 80s so like made for my age that were really really great and fun um these included like adapting russian folk tales into kind of tongue-in-cheek um humor and fantasy movies and also like the traditional fairy tales like cinderella and you know all those uh they were always um, they're not a musical in the same way like Hollywood does musicals, but they always had musical numbers in them. Almost all of our movies did, including like Three Musketeers um, and all of those kind of the more even kind of the four adults ones. They still had musical numbers. It was it was a big part of the industry for the actors to also be singing. So, yeah, so it was actually really great. Like, I had a, a lot of great memories. And luckily for me, a lot of them are on YouTube now. So anytime I want to, like, have childhood nostalgia... <laughs> I can just dive right in, <laughs> dive right in. I want to mention one that was a big influence on me that wasn't actually Russian. It was Italian. Um, it was called Fantagero. There's actually five movies. It was a series of five. Um, in English, the first one was dubbed and released as Cave of the Golden Rose. Um, it starred Alessandra Martinez, who's like the most gorgeous woman ever. So as a little kid, you just wanted to grow up to be her. And it's actually based on an Italian folk story about this princess who basically doesn't have to wait for the prince like she's the hero of her own story and that's why i really love these you know fantagro gets to pick up a sword and she's the one who actually has to duel her prince uh for the honor of her kingdom and there's brigitte nielsen as the dark witch and it was i love these movies except movie five we do not speak of movie five you will find this is a consensus among fans <laughs> that the rest of them were fantastic for a long time, I actually thought they were a TV show because Russia really broke up the movies into like half-hour segments and released them as as if they were a TV show. <laughs> but they're actually films; they're feature-length films. Mm-hmm. Um, so that kind of kick-ass princess really um, took hold of my imagination as a kid, um, and it was like my favorite thing. <laughs> Those are the movies I probably sought out first when I discovered the internet and YouTube. <laughs> Unfortunately, I think the the English dub is fairly hard to find. I find Russian dubs on YouTube easily, but the legit copy of the English DVD, I haven't been able to find it. You might find Amazon vendors if you guys are interested, or if this reminded you that you saw it as a kid. Um, ooh, this is kind of a bit of a trivia, but there was a joint... It might have been like... Finnish, like it was Scandinavian Russian production of a kid's fairy tale. Um, and it was about this kid who's kind of uh, an oppressed orphan in modern day Scandinavia. I don't remember which country exactly. And he gets flown away to this mystical kingdom and turns out he's the prince and he has to save everybody. And the only reason I mention it is it was a good movie on its own, but it starred so many Western actors <laughs> that I now recognize. Believe it or not, it starred baby Christian Bale. Not even in the starring role. He was the best friend. Uh, it had Christopher Lee as the bad guy. <laughs> when I look back Sounds on a bit it, right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and I read Christian Bale's like recollection of filming it. Um, I think this was like 
before the big nuclear accident, but like somewhere close to the area. I don't know. Like he said, it was scary because <laughs> they actually filmed in Russia and it was scary. <laughs> but um, yeah, so those were th- those were the films I grew up with. Um, not, I don't know if what a Westerner would expect listening about these. Whether it, w- it would have a lot of say like propaganda type stuff, but there wasn't. I would say. There was quite a bit in the books I was reading, but I don't remember really there being any of these rah-rah Soviet unions, the best, n- not in the movies. The movies were basically just your, you know, run like they were fantasy kid stories, so they didn't hit you over the head with any messages that I remember too much. Then mostly they were really fun and really good. So do we want to go into some books? Yes, although I, w- I want to backtrack to Baby Christian Bale. For a minute, yeah. <laughs> the the movie yeah. that that really kind of heralded my my journey into adolescence was Newsies, which I believe I, that and Labyrinth combined brought about the adolescence of millions of young girls. Oh no! Yes, yeah. like Newsies. I was thirteen years old when that hit the theaters. I was the perfect age to become utterly obsessed with it it was the first fandom i discovered on the internet like this is when i discovered that oh my god other people write fan fiction too <laughs> no no my christian bale was even more baby face look at the picture that's how young he was in that in mio in the land of far away <laughs> oh it was a babier than baby yeah the baby facier than newsies <laughs> Oh, before we move on, I do have to mention, because I'm pretty sure Mio and the Land of Far Away is um, an Astrid Lindgren story, and that's, um, I think... Pippi Lottie Longstocking! Yeah, Pippi Longstocking is what you'd know her for, but what we knew her, we knew Pippi Longstocking, but even better, we knew Carlson, who lives on the roof, um, and we actually grew up, we had really great cartoons of that, so a lot of that's... Um, you know, through her, a lot of these Scandinavian books really made it into, and movies based on those books made it into our childhood. Yeah. And then just to to prove my my Christian Bale fangirl geek cred for the birthday I had after Newsies came out, my dad drove to at least five different video stores to look for the um, Christian Bale version of Treasure Island for me. Aww. I know, that's love, right? <laughs> he's, still, he, he's still complaining. It's not a very good version, but that was not the point. <laughs> that sounds about right for a large portion of movies that I've watched over the years and continue to do over the years. Yeah. Research purposes began at a young age. Exactly. Exactly. I will say on the Pippi Longstocking front, that was never a part of like any British childhood of any of my friends or myself. Like this was a strange thing that other people talked about when I went to university as being part of their childhood, and I vaguely knew what it was. It was like the Moomins in that aspect. Oh yes, the Moomins. Oh, okay, there's a the thing Moomins. about the Moomins was the Moomins was on British television for kids, but it was on at like six in the morning. So it was really dark outside, and if you're you're only up at six in the morning if you were going somewhere or your parents were making you go somewhere. So you're small, you're tired, it's dark, and there are these really strange little like hippo things <laughs> with badly dubbed English in cartoons on television, and they're weird and hypnotic, and you're not entirely sure if you're awake or not. So I always associate the Moomins with just strangeness. 
<laughs> just it did not. And I liked Strange as a child, but this was just like, you know, life ruining. <laughs> this, this was I, I don't why. <laughs> This was like as close as I got to being high as a child. <laughs> Moomins had visually altered cake that was still good to eat, and that's really the main one I remember. And there was comets, and they looked funny, but we had cartoons based on the Moomins, and I remember the books. The we didn't have Peepy Longstocking so much in like visually adapted form, but I loved those books. I remember reading them. Mm-hmm. Was Peepy Longstocking big in the states? Oh yeah. Um, I had the book, and there was a movie that came out 88 or 89 that I did see in the theater. This is right around the time that I started having a decent-sized allowance of my own and was allowed to ride the bus to the mall with the movie theater by myself. Um... So, yeah, we went to go see that. And there's, like, the ancient movie that you can see featured in an episode of the Gilmore Girls, episode called We Got Us a Pippi Virgin. You know, that's really what the episode is called. I've um, seen the Tumblr Jeff set. I've been kind of... Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's right around the time that Lorelai and Rory become, like, literally the most obnoxious humans imaginable. Like, you <laughs> think that they could become more obnoxious, and then they do. And it's right around the time the show jumps to start, sadly. Um, but yeah, I like everyone just sort of knew about Pippi, and it's at the point of cultural osmosis that if I wear my hair in two braids, the odds that somebody will suggest that I go get a coat hanger to make them stick out to the side are at about three to one. <laughs> and I am a grown ass woman. And this is still true. <laughs> so there you go. I, I think it's more cultural osmosis. I mean, I also did grow up in a heavily Scandinavian influenced part of the country. Mm-hmm. So there's that. Oh, that's true. Well, I mean, it would be like part of your cultural yeah makeup, really. So yeah. I think I remember the copy of the book I had as being old and falling apart, which might mean that I got it from my mom or my grandparents and that it had been my mom's or my aunt's (laughs) or I stole it from school, which is also entirely possible. (laughs) Okay. So books. So books, <laughs> which we were kind of talking about, because a few these had, you know, cartoon adaptations, but we also read some of them. But um, okay, let's go America, uh, Britain, Russia. So Rayton. Okay, um, my favorite book series as small me was the Little House on the Prairie books by Laura Ingalls Wilder, and like I just heard at least a good portion of our female American listenership go, Oh yeah. 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 (laughs) Uh, (laughs) And this is, I remember I mentioned it to the two of you a couple of months, years ago. And I said, did you guys ever read these? And you both went, what the (laughs) hell are you talking about? 
which made me very sad. Um, These are books about the westward expansion from the point of view. They're semi-autobiographical from the point of view of Laura Ingalls Wilder, who the books start when she is about four in the big woods of Wisconsin around 1870-ish. And it meanders... They move from Wisconsin to the Indian Territory in Kansas. They get kicked out of the Indian Territory because it wasn't open for settlement yet and move to Minnesota. And from there, they move to South Dakota. And I was given these at about, I think, round eight. And the first one is very, go short vignettes. They're like what you remember as a small child. And it's things like... Here's how we get ready for winter. Here's how we amuse ourselves when the snow is up above our heads because we are four and it's Wisconsin and we can't actually leave the house. Not that there's anywhere to go. Here's the story of how Ma slapped a bear that got into the cow pen. True story. (laughs) Um, And then as she gets older and her memories get more clear, the stories get kind of more cohesive. So like Little House on the Prairie is the year they spent in the Indian Territory and what it was like to be kicked out of there. And then in Minnesota, there's a locust plague that eats the the entire crop of wheat. And then they eventually settle permanently in Desmet, South Dakota, which is a town I've actually been to and have seen the actual homestead um we planned the trip because i wanted to go to south dakota so we we went and it was it was a great trip it was a lot of fun i was fifth grade i think um and the the kind of fascinating thing about these books as i've gotten older and can kind of read between the lines is they were edited by laura's daughter rose who was a journalist and a writer in her own right uh see what i did there um (laughs) and there's a kind of a subtle american populist manifest destiny is the best thing ever um if you just you know stick stick to your guns and you keep working hard eventually things work out they may not work out exactly the way you wanted to but eventually the the wheat crop is going to be good and you're going to have enough money to have a house that no one can take away from you um which is a little disturbing when i think about like like that, how much I sort of internalize this message, and then mm-hmm. now that I'm in the real world of 2014, it's not exactly like that. And but there's still a part of me that's like, no, Pa says if you just stick to it, everything's gonna be fine. Um, there's also, I feel like I have to warn for this. So this has been a a topic of pretty significant controversy for these books there's also some significant racism especially towards american indians um the the attitude of the family is that of fairly typical white pioneer settlers that ma hates indians and thinks they need to go away 
far away from her. Pa has some respect for them, but doesn't think that they're actually using the land. So they should just go and let white people do what they want with it. And Laura, as she is growing up, is sort of going, well, I feel bad for the Indians, but I'm not too sure what to what do to about- do with that. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so there's that. Um, there's a fairly disturbing um, segment where one of their neighbors is talking about what she calls the Minnesota Massacre in 1863, I think, which took place in southern Minnesota. Um, And when I asked my mom what that meant, because I didn't know, (laughs) she's like, well, we actually really call it the Sioux Uprising now. And it was not good. Uh, And it ended with President Lincoln having like 30, 60 Lakota, Dakota. I'm not too sure of the tribe. I'll link to a Wikipedia article on this. Mm -hmm. Um, Ordering them hung in Mankato. So there's a lot of that. I think there's a lot if as kids are reading it, they're going to have questions like, what does this mean? What, what happened here? I'm not too sure what's going on. Um, and I think the answer to those questions is just to answer them and not try and pussyfoot around because truth is good, mm-hmm. you know? Um, but those books had a very profound effect on like how, I like to play with food, and the first time I ever tried to recreate a recipe from a book was a recipe on pickled green tomatoes that was in the book about the long winter of 1880, where the book just says, you throw in the green tomatoes with vinegar and sugar and spices, and I'm like, great, we have vinegar, we have sugar, we have spices. Mom, what spices does she mean? And Mom's like, I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) What the hell are you talking about? (laughs) And that was when I discovered my mother didn't know everything. Oh, always a shattering moment as a child. <laughs> it kind of is. Um, there is a Little House cookbook that talks about a lot of food. Like, Laura talks about food a lot. Because, mm-hmm. I mean, she grew up where a lot of your time was spent producing food, cooking food, preserving food. And... A lot of times there was just the same thing for dinner over and over and over again. And in the there's a book where she talks about her husband's childhood. And he grew up on a fairly prosperous farm in upstate New York. And his mother was an amazing cook. And she talks, I mean, it's food porn. It is food porn for 10-year-olds roast hams, chicken pot pie, rye and engine pudding, bird's nest pudding, apples and onions, pies, pies, all the pies, stacked pancakes, fr- uh, all, all the things, all the things, all of the things. And the author of the Little House Cookbook kind of pointed out that this is written by someone who spent a childhood without a lot of food and a lot of varied food and 
clearly has like made her husband tell her about all of this food from his childhood mm-hmm. over and over and over again. Honey, honey, tell me about the pudding. Please tell <laughs> me about the pudding. <laughs> so that that and uh, Richard Scarry's Busy Busy World, that was the book that taught me how to read. And I almost came to blows to somebody at a at a used book sale where I actually found a copy of Busy Busy World. And he was like, I need this for my daughter. And I'm like, no, I need this for my life. Back off. <laughs> you took it away from a child? Yes, I did. And I don't regret it. <sighs> that is a brilliant mental image, by the way. Just throw down in a bookshop. I would watch that. <laughs> yeah, the, the child wasn't actually there. But I have no regrets. I am judging at all. you. <laughs> Go ahead. I have the book. That's the important thing. Um, Kaylee, how about you? Well, I was really taught how to read by my parents. They had these collections of the old fairy tales, the Disney version of the fairy tales, and little hardback books, uh, picture books that my parents would order and they would be delivered to our house. And my dad would read them to me every night. But it got to the point where my dad would be skipping a couple pages, thinking, I'll just get this over and done with and I can go back to watching TV or whatever. And I was like, no, dad, you've missed a page. No, go back and do it again, which was extremely <laughs> irritating for him. And then I sort of realized that I could now read myself so I could really cut out the middleman and get on with making things a lot more efficient for myself. <laughs> but it wasn't really until like a lot of people my age that Harry Potter came along and I became a voracious reader. Harry Potter um, really took off with in UK certainly with Prisoner of Azkaban, and before that, they'd there was a, there's a children's TV show very that's been around since the 50s called Blue Peter, where they had a segment with J.K. Rowling talking about the first two books, and I said to my mum, "Mum, can I have those books?" Didn't think she would actually get me them, and she did, and I basically devoured them as quickly as I could at the time. I'm now a much quicker reader, obviously, but it was a really big deal for me to read this, you know, 280 page book or whatever it was in the space of a week and a half. So I would hide it under my pillow so that when I woke up in the morning I could read some pages before I put on my clothes and then I would do the same at night before I went to bed. And I was the first person in my school to read Harry Potter, so you can imagine how smug I was as a nine-year-old. <laughs> just going up to, how far in are you? Have you got to that? Oh, it gets really better. And then it just got to the point where they all told me to shut up and go away. Another <laughs> common recurrence in my childhood. <laughs> but in terms of the books that really influenced me after that, it's, nothing has really hit those heights. I mean, I have never devoured a series or any real book in the way that I did with Harry Potter. I've never had something grow with me in the way that series did. When Deathly Hallows came out and Harry, Ron and Hermione were 17, I was 17. So the timing of that was just spot on for me. Mm-hmm. So the sort of books that I read now, and I, I would pretty much read anything now, but I can't say that there's a that level of excitement for me for a book for waiting for its release in the way that I did with Harry Potter, where I would go to the midnight book open, you know, bookshop and would read it the moment that I got it and have to scramble to find someone to discuss it with. I never really have that anymore. I don't tend to follow book series anymore anyway, so I think that might be why. But in terms of the books that really influenced me after that, I, I, I went darker. And I think there was actually a direct line in terms of what I read from my youth, from Harry Potter, from a little bit earlier in that I was a big Roald Dahl fan. And there's a real darkness that just penetrates all of those books and sort of falls with the stuff that I was really obsessed with as a teenager, which was primarily the Hannibal Lecter books and the Inspector Rebus novels by Ian Rankin. <laughs> and anything else that would freak out my teachers. <laughs> like, I have a great memory of, um, we had to do a class presentation on the book of our choice, 
when we were in second year, so I would have been about 15, mm-hmm. 14, 15. And I chose Tipping the Velvet by Sarah Waters, which is about Victorian lesbians. Extremely graphic Victorian lesbians. And I got the highest mark in my class, by the way. I would just like to point that out. So, I, I mean, I, I still occasionally read to get a reaction, I'll admit. I was quite entertained by the fact that I was a bit of a loner in high school, and people always thought weird things about me, so I thought I would just exacerbate that situation. Which involved one day taking American Psycho into class and people saying, what are you reading, Kayleigh? And then handing them the book and then just having them sort of throw it back across the table and leave. (laughs) But that was one of the things that somebody made this comment about, says, oh, do you not think that's really weird that you like those kind of books? And it's like, well, not really. I mean, I read The Witches and The Twits and did George's Marvelous Medicine by Roald Dahl when I was younger and awful things happened to people in those books. Yeah, that's the thing. Kids' books aren't really free of darkness. I mean, J.K. Rowling will always say, if you talk to her about it, well, Harry Potter got so dark, and she'll say, it started with a double murder. It was always dark. Exactly. I mean, look, the first rule in children's literature, kill the parents. Yeah. Because I, think, you... I think that basically literature has made being an orphan look far more glamorous than it really had any right to <laughs> I think that is 100% true. But, I mean, you can't have a child go off on a grand adventure if there's a parental unit going, no, 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 that's not safe. Right. So that's why you need to (laughs) kill them off. Mm -hmm. (laughs) But once again, this is nothing new anyway. I mean, go back to the the era of the Grimm's and all the fairy tale writers that came before them. We've been reading this stuff for centuries, the stuff that my parents read and watched is just as dark as the stuff that I consumed, and possibly darker, actually. I yeah. mean, even if you look at something like The Chronicles of Narnia, mm-hmm. I mean, that, that is still pretty dark for an allegorical work that ends really terribly. No, I'm Does never going to get over that C.S. Lewis. Doesn't it take place? Like, the kids are... They're don't not they re- get sent to the country because it's World War Two and they have to be yeah, away from the bomb? Yeah, they're, they're, they're evacuated they're children from, yeah. from London. Uh, which is why, like, I love the first movie a lot and the last time I watched it was after I had been to London and been through the Imperial War Museum which had at the time a whole exhibit on children in World War II and all of these letters and stories from the children who were evacuated writing to their parents going there isn't enough food here please let me come home or stuff like that so all of the I'm getting choked up just thinking about it. <laughs> so they're, they're, the movie has all the children being packed onto the train and the mothers trying to bravely wave them away when clearly they're thinking, I don't know if I'm going to see my kid again. And that would have been a reality for the kids that were reading that book. I mean, the Narnia books were written in the late 40s, early 50s. Yeah. So these were, the, these were the, war, the children of the war. They knew exactly what was going on. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They, would have, they would have lived it. Mm-hmm. Yep. I mean, it's a very much a book of its time, but I mean, we were talking about as well the timelessness of certain children's stories, but it's you don't really notice the context when you're a child. Like, um, one of the most popular things that British children grew up reading was Enid Blyton's novels. And when you look back on that work, uh, when you're you know slightly more aware of the world, you just realise that, holy crap, the, the racism, the sexism, <laughs> the real love of the British class system and having people in their place... I mean, she uses gollywogs a lot in her work. I mean, to the point where you think she has a bit of a complex with them. Mm-hmm. I actually have the Wikipedia page over here. There's a line in the book, one of the books, where 
someone in one of the famous five novels where a character is described as being as black as an n-word with suit <laughs> this was in the 40s i mean this is pretty much the attitude towards people of color in britain at that time mm-hmm. so but and actually if you read a lot of these books now they've been edited to pieces like there's an entire book called the free golly Wolves, and i believe it's now called like the free happy elves or something like that <laughs> So they are updating that because there is certainly something about these novels that appeals to children mm-hmm. just as soon as you take out how awful Enid Blyton was as a person. Although I <laughs> yeah. was never really into Enid. I, I mean, I liked a couple of the famous five novels, although I really hated the fact that Georgina, or George, who's the tomboy of the group, basically is treated you know, like a complete anomaly and, oh, you should stop trying to pretend to be a boy, George. It doesn't make you better. It was a real sort of like putting girls in their place angle that I really didn't like. I always preferred Roald Dahl. There was a weird sort of rivalry when I was growing up. You either liked Roald Dahl or Enid Blyton, and Enid Blyton, on top of just being, you know, weirdly racist and stuff, was very twee. There's a lot of by Jove and oh, you know, oh joy and crumbs. <laughs> Let's go off on an adventure, old chum. And I just, it was too much for me. I, I was too cynical even at that age to quite go along with it. Oh, you're not, you're not down with that old sport. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't watched The Great Gatsby recently. I really want old sport to come back into fashion. <laughs> just going to add it to the sentence randomly. I support um, that. So, books... Uh, my reading was always heavily influenced by my older brother, who basically set out to raise a mini-me by feeding me all, like, all the books he's read <laughs> and just funneling them to me, which worked out great because he had me read Wheel of Time and I met uh, both one of my closest friends now and my husband through those books. <laughs> so really affected the rest of my life. Um, but before I get to the Russian sci-fi I mentioned, uh, I actually want to talk about a set of Polish books uh, that were Tomic's Adventures. So any other Eastern Europeans listening might recognize them. So, and talk about books that kind of start with a kid in, in dark circumstances. Uh, Tomek in the first book is 12 years old. Uh, he lives in Poland at the turn of like the 19th to 20th century at the mm-hmm. time. So this is before the Russian Revolution. Russia is an empire and Poland is an basically like a subservient occupied territory of the Russian Empire. So there's a lot of political stuff in the first book. His father's already been exiled as a revolutionary and ta- and his mother's dead. He's been raised by an aunt and an uncle and he misses his dad so much. He actually like considers uh, writing death to the czar on the blackboard so he would have to like run away into exile too. <laughs> um, but these are adventure books. He ends up rejoining his dad and they work for... Uh, zoos and travel around the world capturing wild animals and this is uh, they were written in the mid 20th century so they weren't written at the time but they were set you know in that in that time period where not all of um, Africa or Australia or New Zealand were like entirely explored Mm-hmm. Um, they go to America too in one of the books, and there's you know uh, adventures with the the Native Americans as well as all the indigenous tribes of all the other um, places they go. And they're they're I mean, a they were very educational. You learned a lot about geography. You learned a lot about animals. They ha- always have these stories about like the old explorers and why like why are mountains named after these guys? Well, this is what they did. So you got a lot of that value out of them. And because the main character is a kid, I mean he grows up as a teenager throughout the books and you can kind of grow up with them but you know it's just just really great to see the kid going on all these adventures they really kind of make you think about your cultural attitudes because um 
like I wouldn't say the books are not racist and then the main characters being from an oppressed people almost always sympathize with the native population that have has been taken over by the Europeans but they're also written in kind of the colloquialism on the time so there there's that the attitudes are not racist but sometimes the portrayals and language can still be a little bit just because that's kind of the way people thought and wrote you know what you know what I mean Mm. Um, so these books can still really just kind of when you read them as a modern person can really go back and, and make you and make you think about how the stereotype of being noble is still a stereotype and you're not really describing a person mm-hmm. that's that's the kind of thing I'm talking talking about but um, but they, they still were really great adventure books and certainly very educational about the world and kind of they just made you want to go out and you know roam through the jungles <laughs> Um, and I, I don't know why it didn't bother me kind of Russians be, well, I wouldn't say Russians were the bad guy in this. I mean, there were certainly anti-empire, but they had Russian characters who were also, um, like who weren't villainized, you know, um, they go into like the Russian revolution later and in the later books too. Uh, so those were really interesting. I'd like to, and this is something our American readers might remember, but some of uh, our listeners, sorry, our American listeners, might have read Diane Duane's Young Wizards books. Diane Duane is a really great writer. She uh, she's actually uh, might be known to uh, Star Trek fans as um, she wrote both for the shows and for novels. Um, but I knew her, but I didn't know that about her until recently. <laughs> I knew her best when I picked up her Young Wizards, which is kind of a um, urban fantasy young adult series. So the wizardry, the magic in these is very science based. Like there's very specific rules and laws to it. And what's more, there's a very specific cost to it. It's not about, it, it's very not Harry Potter where magic just permeates those kids live wizardry in dan duane's book is um it's an oath you take to live by a code to to combat entropy wherever you see it and the cost can sometimes be your life and no matter how young you are so you really have to think about whether or not you want to take that oath and, and join this fight because if you have to die for it you have to die for it um so talk about you know kids books with high stakes. These books definitely did not shy away from any of that. The series has actually been going on for a very long time. It started in, I think, the late 80s, mid to late 80s, but they're still being released now, and she's actually releasing new, what she calls new millennial editions because she wants to update a little bit of the language so all the books kind of seem coherently based in the now um, and so that new readers don't feel alienated by <clears throat> you know, VHSs or any other outdated mentions. Particularly as one of her characters is a wizard whose whose wizardry is very rooted in computers. So she wants to make sure that's all up to date. Um, if I would really recommend these to anybody who likes urban fantasy and who wants to see kind of magic and the different these are these were really but as a kid they were really great because they um you know, the stakes were so real, so you really worried about the characters and you knew what the stakes were for them. Uh, I, I would say they were kind of Harry Potter for our generation is the way Kaylee's generation would wait for on their 11th birthday for that letter from Hogwarts. Anybody who read these would make a choice on whether or not they wanted to read the wizard's oath out loud. I, I posted on Tumblr once saying like most of us would read it out loud just in case. And I actually had one person respond and said she specifically made sure never to read it out loud because she knew that if this was real, she wasn't ready to make that kind of sacrifice. <laughs> with her life 
And about the Russian, oh, Russian sci-fi though. So Russia has a very long-standing, um, respected and kind of treasured tradition of um, sci-fi and fantasy writing. These are very popular genres in Russia, um, both with kids and adults. And the, the Strugatsky brothers are kind of the, the godfathers of the industry. Uh, very well-known names. These would be names, um, if, if perhaps their actual last name isn't known to our listeners, anybody who's played the Stalker games has basically been influenced by them. Uh, the Stalker video games are based on their roadside picnic novel. Um, they've influenced a lot of modern sci-fi from all over the world. Um, they, they have both... Um, I like some of their humor, kind of more lighthearted humor stuff better, uh, specifically Monday Starts on Saturday, which is about uh, this slightly hapless programmer who gets uh, roped into working for the Research Institute of Wizardry and Magic. Uh, and it's later books. Uh, it has two books, and the second is a little more social commentary, like about political social commentary. But the first one's more of a humor and fantasy, and that's the kind of stuff I really liked as a kid. Uh, but their harder sci-fi really starts with hard-hitting questions, uh, like it's hard to be a god, which is all about um, being from an advanced um, star-traveling civilization and trying to raise younger civilizations up and introduce like new concepts to them. Um, like I said, Roadside Picnic is, an, is another big name, so we'll link in the show notes. If you, if you love sci-fi, I really recommend um checking out their stuff and one particular story i wanted to mention um is by a, a female writer olga larionova and she has a story that really influenced me it's called uh, the leopard from the peak of mount kilimanjaro uh which is the sci-fi there is mostly kind of for the setting it's about a man who was stranded on a space station due to an accident for like a decade um and he has to come home and rebuild relationships in the world that's been forever altered by the fact that now everybody can find out when they're going to die um so it, it was really i don't know it's i i found the book kind of accidentally dug it up it was my brother's book and i was a little kid and i dug it up and it really affected me and i keep on telling myself how someday i'm going to translate this for my english-speaking friends <laughs> and maybe our listeners now can like hold me responsible for that <laughs> now that i said it publicly because it's really it's a really great sci-fi novel um, I, I was really lucky as a kid in that, in that um, the, the sci-fi fantasy for kids was released particularly by this one publishing house and their books were really easy to find. They all had the one design. And a lot of book vendors were like in the city park in the center and I would grab whatever adult was available, usually my grandmother, make them take me and just like scour like a locust all of the book vendors with their books out, <laughs> have like a pack I would take home with me and then curl up in the armchair and spend the rest of the day just like swallowing them one after the other. <laughs> and those are actually probably my fondest memories of being a kid is having those new, those stack of new books, uh, all of them sci-fi and fantasy and just like being able to... Um, lose myself in those worlds i just remembered one of the books that was a big influence to me actually one of the authors was roald dahl mm-hmm. oh, when yeah. i when i was growing up you were either a roald dahl fan or an enid blyton fan and enid blyton was far too twee for my liking you know, it was full of children who said oh jolly and by jove and let's go on an adventure and it's just like i need someone to get injured or something and mm-hmm. that's one of the great things about things like Charlie and the Chocolate Factory or the Magic Finger and Twits is awful things happen to people in these books. And I loved that. There was just something so gloriously mysterious about that that appealed to my sense of humour right away. And also because I was 
I had a lot of issues at school. I was bullied quite badly from a young age. And that continued on pretty much throughout my entire time in education. So there was just a small sadistic part of my brain that sort of released my you know, pent-up energy over that through the form of reading, which also explains a lot about the choices in books I made once I got older. See, I liked Enid Blyton, but I think there's a thing that happens when you read them in translation is that we don't get that outdated language. So you kind of get the benefit of reading the books as if they were written in a more modern language, which I guess yeah. is a really different experience. Reading Enid Blyton's very interesting when you're older because she's one of those other authors that you realize is, oh wow, she was really, really racist. Yeah. <laughs> one of one of her books is called The Free Gollywogs. And she talks about gollywogs an awful lot in her work. <laughs> like an awful lot, like the, she has a complex or something. what are gollywogs? They're these um very, very racist depictions of african-american individuals okay oh <laughs> well done it's, it's kind of like the it's like a black and white minstrel in the form of a doll and they were very popular with children um, uh -huh. during that time i see mm -hmm. if you ever read any of the tintin comics there's one where tintin goes to the congo and they all basically look like that yeah there's there's a bit in one of the later little house books where in an effort to keep the entire town from going completely batshit crazy during winter, they have sociables and uh, social gatherings on Friday nights. And one of the things they do is have a minstrel show. Which, when I first read it, I really had no idea what the hell was going on. That, that Pa Ingalls blacked his face and everything and then once i kind of understood the context of minstrel shows it was like oh oh pa no <laughs> no please don't 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 yeah I, I suppose i'd be remiss if i didn't talk about the little house on the prairie tv series which is Loosely based to vaguely inspired by the books. Very, very loosely based. I used to watch that with my mom. Uh, again, I used to watch a lot of things with my yeah. mom. Yeah, I, I did watch TV it with person. my mom. Um, and, I, I mean, I also watched Dukes of Hazard with my mom, too. I loved that show. I had no sure, idea what it was about, yeah. but there was a while where I tried to make her let me crawl out of the car through the window. Because <laughs> that's what the Duke of Hazards do! My mom didn't watch uh, Duke of Hazards, but she watched uh, Sarsky and Hutch all the time, and Scarecrow and Mrs. King, and the uh, the Ron Perlman Beauty and the Beast no. all the time. Ooh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> the Linda Hamilton one, right? The 80s yeah. were a fascinating time for adventure TV. <laughs> A fascinating time. <laughs> but she also she also had me watch um, uh, reruns of the Muppet Show. Uh huh. Uh, oh yeah. And yep. Just, she 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 knew she she knew all the stuff that she liked growing up, and so she kept trying to show it to all the rest of us. And so, and, and and it took it, it took more on some of us than others. But uh, no, that, that that was definitely a thing. Yeah. Bedtime was after the Muppet Show was over. <laughs> Remember that? <laughs> oh. 
but yeah, the Little House on the Prairie show is loosely, vaguely, sort of inspired by the books, and then it just goes completely off the rails, and they end the series by blowing up the town. Did any of you guys read uh, Lloyd Alexander's like Black Cauldron, the the Pride and Chronicles as kids? Oh God! Oh my God! Is this okay. one that they made into the Disney movie? Yeah, they but the, the Disney they Disney fight it, right? I know. I've seen the Disney movie, which is actually it's both it's half intolerable and half really fascinatingly dark. Because the books are, I love the books. I've just um, ordered them in English so I can reread them. <laughs> <laughs> we. I did see the movie with my grandfather in the theater. Like, I would go and spend a week with my grandparents in the summer. And one of the things we would do was go see a movie. And the year before, I made him take me to the My Little Pony movie. And that went over well. I loved it. (laughs) And then the next year, we went to go see The Black Cauldron, which scared me. A lot, and I wanted to leave, and he was like, "Nope, you made me sit through the My Little Pony movie. You can you can tolerate this." Well, okay, I'm gonna assume that Disney, as usual, like named it Black the Black Cauldron, but probably took like elements from all the other books and then just did his own thing with them anyway. Can't possibly tell you. What did what did the okay? Let's compare notes. What did the, what is the movie storyline at least like generally? Kaylee, you're gonna have to take this because all I remember is just a second. <laughs> All, what I mostly remember, just off the top of memory, there's a there was a princess called Elion. Elion V. Elion V. And there's a guy with a peg. Terran. The peg, is, the peg can like predict the future or something like that. Yes. And then there's a horned king. Yes. And then there's a really annoying little sidekick who won't shut up. Gorgi. I believe mm-hmm. that's it. Gorgi. Yes, I'm on Wikipedia now. Hang on a sec. <laughs> okay, so but there's three, there's three witches. I remember that. Yes. <laughs> And, I, and he needs, I believe he needs to find the Black Cauldron and he needs to get it before the Horned King does and then the Horned King's skin is torn off. Okay. So he took the Book of Three, which is the first book, and the second book, the Black Cauldron, and then stripped away anything about the books that made them good. Good to know. Yeah. Lloyd Alexander, the Chronicles of Pryden. Really yeah, good pentalogy, to... you people. Yeah. <laughs> I We had to read... I don't even remember which number of book this is. The High King, I think. Is the yeah. last one. Yeah, we had to read that in English. Oh. In English class when I was... Uh, that would be weird. How do you read The High King not having read any of the others? That was my problem. Is I had no idea what the hell was going on. And I kept going to the teacher going, Why are we reading this book? No, it wasn't high school. It was sixth grade. Why? Like, this is clearly not the first book in the series. We, uh, we have no context to what the hell is going on. She's like, this is a curriculum. We have to. And I'm like, yeah, but that's dumb. Yeah. So what's actually going on is the first one's called The Book of Three. And Taryn is the assistant pig keeper for Henwen, who is an oracular pig. Um, and Henwen runs away because she senses the, the horned king, who's uh, the evil lord Anubin's kind of sidekick, coming for her. Um and Taryn runs off after her, so he meets Ilanvi uh, and Gorgi and Gideon, the hero, kind of along the way looking for the pig. Um, and mostly it's it's kind of like them traveling around trying to get to her, and in the end the Horn King is destroyed and, every, and Taryn gets to return home. The Black Cauldron, the Cauldron is, um, now these books are based on Welsh, loosely based on the Mabinogian, the Welsh mythology. The Black Cauldron makes basically zombie warriors 
for the evil king Anuvin. So the second book is Gideon puts together this kind of expedition to try and destroy it. Um, and Taron in the first book is that kid who just wants to be a hero. But in the second book, he's still that, but now is a little more experienced. And he, there's this prince who's part of the expedition who's kind of the second son, and he's sick of being the second son. So he's just so envious and jealous and just wants glory for himself. So he keeps on trying um, to say, like, oh, this pig boy doesn't deserve any of the glory, and I should be the one who finds the cauldron and destroys it. But in the end of the book, you find out that the only way to destroy the cauldron is for a living person to willingly enter it. And the prince, having like kind of been completely consumed and knowing he's consumed by his own, his own envy and hatred and malice and jealousy, just ends his life by jumping into the cauldron because at least he'll have the final glory of destroying it. So these are, yeah. Look, these are good books. Um, the third one is actually more about Elonvi, who's a descendant from a kind of magician race and trying to. Um, I think, find her heritage and some of her powers. Then Terran Wanderer is about Terran trying to find out who he is because he's a foundling. And in the last one, he becomes the High King. But, but yeah, they're really great. There's um the the five set. I've just bought it because I have them in Russian and I, re- and I decided I want to reread them in English. I bought them along with um, the Talking to Dragons, Patricia Reed series, which is another great one. Um, those who do Mark Reads, he's doing like the YouTube readings of them, and that just made me want to reread them, so I bought, I have that in Russian, I bought that in English too. (laughs) Those are amazing. I also wanted to touch on video games, but I don't know, I think Kevin and I are the only ones who've probably been playing since we were young? No, I have Um, as well. Actually, not not so much. My mom had a ColecoVision. Again, everything everything comes from my mom. Um, (laughs) But... We love you, Kevin's mom. Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> uh, and she had a Game Boy, but I never really had anything until I started making money um, from uh, my own job and uh, started uh, buying things for myself. Because my my parents were were big proponents of of the idea of they'll give us all the stuff we need and do lots of fun stuff with us, but anything above and beyond like rationality we have to pay for ourselves i didn't get a i didn't get a cell phone until i started paying for it myself um i bought my first car from them and i'm making it sound out a lot more bleak and 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 uh, no 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 sounds like look here's a dollar here's the value of a dollar yeah it, it, it yeah i mean we we had books we had uh uh toys we had lots of stuff but video games they figured were superfluous and we had we had to pay for that ourselves (laughs) and now we're gonna have that well not fight but you know i'm using the word jokingly of the value of the video game well i mean it's it 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 was different back then than it is now where video games are legitimate uh storytelling media um and they were back then, but not nearly to the same degree, with the exception of uh, a few different uh, franchises. Um, and my parents didn't hate video games. We played video games with uh, at my friend's house. Um, and again, my mom had a ColecoVision and a Game Boy, um, but they didn't buy it for us. Well, we, we didn't have a video game system. I mean, we had a ancient, ancient Atari that barely worked that had Pong on it and that was it. Um, 
and that lost its appeal really quickly. But my dad, and, and this is where I'm kind of showing my age, that when my mom and my stepdad got married, she brought me into the family, and he brought an Apple IIe computer. So we've had a computer in the house since I was four. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so we played things like, like truly old school Oregon Trail, and uh, yes. I mean before you could move your little hunting guy around, it was on the green screen, and you mm-hmm. just hit the space bar as the deer ran across. I mean, old school. Um, old school Battlestar Galactica that had nothing to do with Cylons, I don't think. <laughs> um, Odell Pond and stuff like that. And then the complexity of the games grew as we progressed in computer generations. Um, but we, like, when the Nintendo system came out, I mean, yes, I'm a part of that generation that instinctively, like, oh, this thing isn't work, let's blow on it. <laughs> yeah, that, that, <laughs> see if that helps and at least two thirds of the time it does remember that uh, news article a couple years ago that said that that was more psychological than anything else that it didn't actually do anything yeah blew my mind um, but that's it, not the point yeah. <laughs> but you can always tell someone who came of age in the early 90s because that's sort of our it's like, oh, this thing isn't working well let's try blowing on it first Blow on the inside, blow the dust out. Yeah. Yep. Um, when I say when I say we didn't we uh, they didn't buy us video games, that does not uh, include the computer. Although they didn't really buy us stuff for the computer, aside from um, there was Reader Rabbit, which was the best thing ever. Um, there was the uh, the Tink Tonk games, which um, I looked them up on YouTube uh, recently, and they're. Definitely not what I remember them being. <laughs> um, they're a lot more simple, a lot more uh, uh, weird than I remember them being. But I used to love them. There was the math one. There was it, and 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 then there were all all my dad's old computer games that um, I played. I actually learned how to play backgammon on one of his old uh, computer games. Then uh, instead of actually on a backgammon board. Did no one uh, else play Mixed Up Mother Goose? No. No. Oh, that was another. Okay, Mixed Up Mother Goose was my first. I think it was my first video game, and um, you 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 actually could pick what your character looked like. So there was like a choice of boy and girl characters and various like hair and skin colors, and you go to sleep and you wake up in Mother Goose Land, and all those rhymes and like the. The people in the rhymes and the objects they're usually with are separated, so you had to match them up. So you had to bring, like, the candle to the boy who jumps over the candle, and, like, the fiddle to the cat, the mouse to the clock, and, like, sometimes you had to do it in particular order so that the paths would open. Mm-hmm. Um, and in the end, it was, like, Humpty Dumpty and, like, I guess Old King Cole. And if you completed everything, they, like, crown all the characters would gather and say hooray and they always sing the rhyme after you do it and like meaty music <laughs> then you wake up I played the shit out of that game I played it so and I knew nothing about Mother Goose because none of that was sung to me as a kid right I knew nothing about it this was still back in Russia so I just kind of figured my way into what's where <laughs> we had the Super Grover game which was great um, where you, I think you had to do math to get rid of uh, aliens 
Um, Seems uh, legit. <laughs> well, it, um, <laughs> that's 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 another thing. My mom was always the one that was big on on showing us uh, movies and musicals and TV shows and stuff that that w- were always really important to her and stuff that and new and upcoming stuff that she was getting into. Like I, I, I watched Buffy with her throughout its almost its entire run from day one. Uh, my dad is. Uh, very passive about his geekery. He will watch stuff if it's on, but he doesn't really go seek it out unless it's Lord of the Rings. Um, but he always, always, always made sure that we had access to his computer and that he uh, he would occasionally bring some home from uh, the school he worked at uh, so that we kept up on the technology because he... he he knew that this stuff was going to be important to us, so he made sure that we grew up with it. And so, mm-hmm. because of that, my older sister and I grew up with computer skills that a lot of our friends didn't. Um, of course, by the time for my brother and my younger sister came around, then it was pretty normal for everybody. But uh, I really think that he intended us to have a leg up on life, and, and it worked relatively well. So I'm, I'm really thankful for that, too. Yeah. And we we didn't we didn't always have a lot of money when we were younger mm-hmm. um, for various reasons that I will not go into at the moment um, or probably ever. But <laughs> uh, there were things that we didn't have, and there were things that they always made sure that we did, regardless of what else was happening, mm-hmm. and that was one of them. Right. Yeah. One last piece of video game geekery for me. Did you guys know there was a hidden ending to the original Prince of Persia? No. Yeah. The ori- So the ending is, you know, you beat the game and you walk in and the princess jumps up to you and kisses you, right? My brother and his friends accidentally discovered that if you do not take battle stance off before walking in and you walk into the princess's uh room with battle stance on she's not going to kiss you she's going to kick you in the jaw and you're going to die and lose the game nice brilliant i actually wanted to ask kaylee about this because kaylee is of basically of a generation younger than the rest of us here so i think your experience with video games probably would have been different because you would have had like the the early final fantasy imports would have been around right um... Final Fantasy VII was actually one of the very first video games I ever owned. Uh, well, not the first. It was the first one I ever had on the PlayStation. But I had a I had a Sega uh, Mega Drive, which is known as Genesis by people who are wrong. And the reason I had a Sega was because my dad wanted people one. Wrong. Yeah. <laughs> well, my, my dad is a bit of a nerd when it comes to this. He's always wanted one, but he had the excuse of having a six, seven-year-old daughter to get one. So the reason that I had... The Sonic the Hedgehog games growing up was because my dad wanted to play them. The reason I got a PlayStation was because my dad wanted one. The reason I got a PlayStation 2 was because he wanted one. When he finally got to the age where he just decided to give up the shame and buy a console for himself, you know, it was a very interesting day in the household. But I, <laughs> so, I mean, and he still has that. He's basically trying to talk my mother into getting an Xbox One, and she's just, she's refusing to let go on that one. It's like, not on your life, not for £400. We're trying to talk about the PS4, but that's not happening. But anyway, the, the Sega was the one for me. It was mostly Sonic because it was bright and colorful and it was fast. And it was it was one that required a certain degree of skill but not one that was impossible to do when you were young. 
because mm. I was also a little bit rubbish when it came to computer games. If it was too difficult, I tended to just sort of give up, and then my dad would come in and finish it for me. So games were a lot more difficult when we were younger. They <laughs> oh were, yeah, they yeah. I mean, I didn't have a, I didn't have a memory card for my PlayStation for like the first year, so. If I wanted to finish playing a game, I would either have to leave my TV on all night and then finish it the next day, or turn it off and start again. So, the one that was the big influence for me, because it was one that really led to a lot of bonding time with my dad, was the Oddworld series on PlayStation. Oh, which starts with that. Which starts with Abe's Odyssey, and the next one's Abe's Exodus, and then it went, into a sort of, it went from a side-scroller to 3D, and it wasn't as good a game. But it's basically about this alien called Abe who finds out that the meat factory he works at is going to start slaughtering him and his own kind. So he has to escape and save all of his buddies. And it's a really ingeniously put together platforming game. And it was one that was easy enough to start off with and increase in difficulty. And it was one that my dad got very into. So he used to wire up the PlayStation in our living room down from my bedroom and we would just watch him play it. Uh, and it's also a very, very funny series of games, mainly because it involves farting. <laughs> and, you know, what can I say? I was like eight, nine years old. It had farting. Of course I thought it was funny. Mm, but one of the things that that's... you can do is the character can possess people and control them. And if you, in the second game, you can possess your fart and make it fly around the screen and blow things up. And it sounds like a helicopter as it whizzes through the sky. And I thought this was genius. I thought it was the best thing ever. Well, they <laughs> it's are now the really humor that transcends generational boundaries. It, it's, a, it's a binding force of humanity. But they are re-releasing the first game. They've remastered it, and it's going to be coming out on um, on PlayStation and Xbox. So my dad is very excited. Excellent. Yay! <laughs> Yay! When I was older, um, the marathon games came out. For we we've been a Mac household my entire life. To the point when I was working at Borders a couple of years ago, before they you know choked. Um, so a customer, <laughs> a customer came up to me holding up two different books on Windows and said, "Which one's better?" And I'm like, "Oh." And he said, "Well, do you have a computer?" And I said, "Yes." And he triumphantly said, "Well, what kind of computer do you have?" Clearly about to go. Well, if you have a Windows computer, why don't you know about Windows books? And I looked at him and said, "I've been a Mac user for 25 years." And he went, "Oh." <laughs> And slunk away with One of those. Yeah. <laughs> um, so when the marathon games came out, and I was in high school, my dad, by that time we had multiple computers, and dad had figured out how to network the house together. And so we would play marathon against each other, which meant yelling at each other from three rooms away, going, you got my Gatling gun out! dare you! Which mom always found both funny and kind of disturbing. Good times. Right. <laughs> Good times. Bonding with your parents by blowing them up. <laughs> um, I want us to read uh, the tweets because we, we reached out on Twitter to our listeners and asked them what uh, their formative media was. And they mentioned quite a few of the things that we haven't. So, um, Kevin, why don't you do us the honor, and I'm going to link you the one of the first answers. I'm going to get you, <clears throat> you do, my, my, do my reading voice, huh? Yeah. And mention All who right. it's from. <laughs> All right. We have uh, from Julia Kelly, at the Julia Kelly, at Twitter. 
Dear at Anglophiles, <laughs> as a kid, it was Matilda. As a teen, I captured the castle and persuasion. Quiet, bookish girls, learning how strong they could be. <laughs> I'm actually very impressed with a Jane Austen book um, on a list because I don't, I don't think I really got her until much later in life. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The next one was from Daniel Clark at Aruvadril on Twitter. Ah, Danielle. Yeah. She's awesome. Hi, Danielle. She said it was Lord of the Rings, the Tomorrow series by John Marsden, and all of Tomorrow Pierce. Yeah. Have you have her on the show yet? You should have her on the show. She's awesome. Tomorrow Pierce? No, well, <laughs> also her. <laughs> um, Danielle. Raiden, why don't you do Cleo Linda's that I just um, linked? Cleo Linda, I have the, I have oh. it all out. Uh, Cleo says the collected works of Louisa May Alcott and Ellen Montgomery. So Anne of Green Gables, Emily of New Moon. How could I forget those? Oh. And Anne is one of the reasons I have red hair. Oops. Red Sonia is the other. Cleo Linda's an awesome person. You should have her on the show. Yeah, that's a good idea. Think about it. I mean, surely we can find something that she would like to talk about. Oh, surely. (laughs) (laughs) It Uh, may or may not end up with somebody being eaten. (laughs) Um, Do you want me to do this other tweet from Cleo Linda as well? Sure. Um, She adds, and Narnia. Which, oh god, I didn't talk about Narnia. And mm. the never ending story. And Labyrinth. Back to David Bowie. Time is a flat circle. Yeah, she said that the 80s were a fantastic movie for, a fantastic time for fantasy movies. And I think she, for, for you guys, I think she was right. Yeah. I was actually introduced to Narnia because the first two chapters where Lucy goes through the wardrobe and meets Mr. Tumnus was in my reader book for fourth grade. And I read that and I was like, wow, that was really cool. Um, and then like maybe a year later, I discovered it was part of a larger book and there was more to the story. And it just blew my mind. <laughs> Can I make a confession here? Sure. I didn't know until about high school that Narnia was allegory. <laughs> I, can be, no, I, I can just be thought that. it was a standalone I, thing. I, I didn't. That. I didn't. I, 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 think I, that's, I, that's about accurate. My grandmother still refuses to believe it. Like, I had to, to. I had to be told. And now, and now, um, I'm a, I'm now in a position where I'm now introducing my mom to things that I enjoyed as a kid. Narnia was on the list. Um, I forgot to add those into, my, into the books, but uh, um, for my thing, but that that, that was definitely a thing. But um. She read them recently, and I was able to tell her, oh, and by the way, those are allegory. <laughs> I, did, I enjoyed My Jewish mother. So. I, I, have, I have sort of tainted memories of reading Narnia as a child because the last battle just annoyed me so much growing up. And it still annoys me, actually. Just of what I've only read it Susan. once. I've only read it. I have the yeah. collected works, and I still have it. I'm still mad about how it treated Susan. I read them in what Cleo referred to as the evil new order because I read um, a Russian... Heretical renumbering. Yeah. 
I read them in a Russian translation edition that took four of them, which is like the prequel in the first three actual Narnia books. And my favorite has always actually been The Horse and His Boy. That that one I loved so much. Mm-hmm. My favorite was always Don Treader, but I loved Horse and His Boy. Although I didn't like it the first time I read it, I thought it was really stupid. I was like, what is this? What does this have to do with anything else? And it took me another couple of read-throughs before I realized, wait a minute, no, this is my favorite. Yeah. I love that one. And not just because I was a big horse person. Still a big <laughs> that was the, that was the other thing. <laughs> I think that's why my grandparents bought me the copy that they did. As I said, I want Narnia books. They bought me that one. <laughs> because... Because it's like they knew me. <laughs> to be fair, it's a standalone story. Yeah. Um, it is a standalone story, yeah. <laughs> but interestingly enough, um, both uh, my younger sister and I got to uh, tell my mom, no, don't read them yet. Let us reorder the books into the proper order before you start reading them. Thank you. <laughs> and she was like, oh, okay. And then after, um, after she finished the series, she was like, Okay, now that I'm looking at the way these are numbered, you're right. That that would not have made sense uh, at all. The the way that they uh, packaged them. Yeah. <laughs> Although what's what's even more horrible is that apparently that was the intended order, and then well, that... the publisher order is the order that we think is the real order, and then they went back to his order, which is the wrong order. Yeah. No, C.S. Lewis, you are wrong in all of the ways with yeah. that. Wrong, wrong. Just sit there in your wrongness and be and wrong. wrong. Also, Susan, still haven't forgiven you. No. So, executive Never over it. can be a good thing. <laughs> Kaylee, why don't you read Claudia's? I think Claudia Reese has written Carrie made me first think about moral relativism and how insanity is ascribed not innate. Seventh grade is still child, right? I think in terms of influence, I'm probably more influenced by the things of my adolescence than my childhood, to be honest. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. But Especially in terms of books. I mean... My hardcore love of literature may have come from Harry Potter, but the sort of books that shaped me and the ideas that I'm really interested in and the kind of, you know, ethics and morality that I have now as a 23-year-old, I think came a lot from books that I read as a teenager. And also the things that I shared with my sister, because my sister is three years younger than me. And pop culture tends to be the one thing we share, because personality-wise, we're both very, very different. So... It was things like The Virgin Suicides was a really big influence on the pair of us growing up. I read that and I was like, you have to read this and then watch the movie. And that's one of her favorites. And a lot of like really cool old black and white movies that Hitchcock did in the 40s um, were a big influence on my sister as well. Because I made her sit down and watch them with me one night. And now she's making her partner watch them. And she's going to pass them to her friends. What about Stephen King? Does, was anybody else here um, reading him at an early age? I didn't start reading Stephen King until high school, but that, but again, just like Kaylee said, I, I, I was having trouble picking, you know, books and stuff that were influential as a kid because I didn't really start reading the stuff that really started influencing me until about uh, junior high, high school, mm-hmm. and and after. Um, and Stephen King was always a big one. He remains one of my favorite authors, even though he doesn't know how to end a book to save his life. Um, <laughs> His short stories will always be his best stories because he has a defined beginning and an ending. Uh, it, was, it was his short stories that were the biggest influence on me. The Different Seasons Collection. Yes. Was I picked up a copy of that when I was about 14 or 15 in a, best thing he's ever written, a music ever. shop. and it was, about, it was about £2 for this book. And I had already seen Stand By Me, so I knew that was in it. I hadn't seen Shawshank Redemption at that point in time, but it's one of my dad's favourites. 
Mm-hmm. So I did eventually get around to that. I still haven't seen all of After Pupil, and I, but they didn't make the movie the fourth one. But that just he's when he's economical, he knows exactly how to do a story in a short amount of time. And especially when it's away from the very hardcore horror elements. I think mm-hmm. he's just, he just gets it so on point. And as I mentioned earlier, Stand By Me had a huge influence on me. So the combination of that story and then seeing it translated to the big screen and seeing how well it could be done was just, that was mind-blowing for me. So it was somebody that influenced my mum really well and then it kind of influenced me. So it was nice to have that continuation. I mean, and I read some of his books, but not a lot. I really was more into the non-horror stuff. I did like Misery a lot, though. But the <laughs> ending sucks. It remains one of my favourite longer books than he... Uh, that 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 he's written, I think it's one of the best of his his novel. By novel length, I mean like more than novel length. Um, it's another <laughs> one that doesn't end; it keeps going. But it's it's probably one of the more concise endings that he's written for a longer book. But it's probably just the from start to finish. It's one of my favorites. Uh, absolutely, he he really gets humanity. And that's what's important for a horror writer is that it's not the monsters that are scary; it's what it's it's the people. Mm-hmm. And that's why the ending of it is so terrible. You spend hundreds and hundreds of pages building up this fascinating, claustrophobic, and genuinely terrifying world, and then giant spider. Spoiler alert! Sorry about that, but that giant spider, giant spider. That's not a giant spider, but we're going to pretend it's a giant spider because you wouldn't understand what it was. Yeah, it. it even then, it, it wrapped up a lot more concisely than his other books. So, The one I remember being really interested in when I was younger of his was Dolores Claiborne, and I have no idea why. I just remember reading that, and I had a... I was Maybe reading... it was just around, it, because I... it was there. Yeah, that and The Shining. I actually very specifically remember my reading of The Shining, as we'd gone on holiday to Florida, and I needed something to read on the plane, so it's the first thing I grabbed, and I read it on the plane going back to Scotland. So, I, I certainly understood the, the claustrophobic madness of being trapped in a small space with people that are slowly you insane. Guys! Sorry, the cats have the zoomies. Um. <laughs> um, I'll take the next one, because th- I'd like to say a few things about it. And that one is by Sabra, um, Sabra Sherm at uh, Qface yeah. Palm. Yeah, another awesome listener. And she said, The Mists of Avalon, definitely. Hmm. Yeah, that one I also read more as a, in my mid-teens, and it came in the middle of my kind of, I don't know, spiritual awakening is the wrong word, but I was raised atheist and got a little bit interested about interested in spirituality kind of on my own as I was growing up, and in my mid-teens I had that, it's, it's horrible, it was more like more of a trendy thing I think, but that flirtation with neo-paganism that I think uh, I'll... Yeah, you too. <laughs> a lot of girls our age and their mid-teens went through that phase, but Marion Zimmer Bradley's Mists of Avalon, I think, was kind of definitive for a lot of us, too, that religion as empowering women as opposed to um, uh, caging them, imprisoning them, that's the word I was like, imprisoning them, that was... And that it was in part of that whole like realist uh, the trend we had of um, fantasy as realism, you know, retelling fairy tales as if they were kind of in a realistic setting. Mm-hmm. It had all of those elements. I mean, it was really well written. Yeah, um, 
I also read that at about the same age and had much the same, like, I was, I was raised and still am Lutheran, but there was the, the period of time in which I was sort of questioning exactly how, how all this works and what's going on. And, um, I, I have to say that both my mother and my church took all of this in stride like you have questions that's fine you should have questions go ahead and ask them do what you gotta do we'll be here when and if you get back no problem so <laughs> I grew up in a fantastic church um and it did I've only finished Mist of Avalon twice I think I've started it at least eight times what did you think of the TV miniseries with Julianna Margulies? Julianne Margulies is very pretty. Yes, yes she is. Very pretty. <laughs> um, I think, I mean, I only saw it when it initially aired. Yeah, uh, same here. So my impressions are very old, and I didn't think a lot of it. Um, I mean, it happened. I hoped at the time that it would get more people interested in reading the book and maybe it did um it had angelica houston in it and she was awesome it was a thing that happened yeah <laughs> sorry <Angelica>. <laughs> <laughs> um yeah pretty much why don't you do the last one because i think you had a bit of a conversation about oh. those on twitter oh was that the the one with carlos yes Okay. So he says, this is telescopic poem. It was my friend Carlos, who's another law person. Um, he says, CNN, MTV News, Reader's Digest that they gave you in school, Sports Illustrated, and Time for Kids. And that reminded me of the, the Reader's Digest weekly reader things that they gave us in school at the same time, which had little stories about... Um, how terrible radon gas is, you may realize why I remember that and why that particular story was traumatic, because you can imagine exactly what all the kids in my school did with the name of radon gas and my name. Oh. So, and a, a lot of things, like they would talk about new science and blah, 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 and inevitably each story would include the phrase, Experts say, blah, 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 blah. And there was at one point where we had a parent-teacher-student conference, and I just kind of unloaded on my teacher, <laughs> going, it says experts say. Who the hell are these experts? Why should we listen to them? I need to know who they are. I need to know what my sources are. I'm like 11, 12, maybe. And my mom is just sort of sitting there going, I'm so proud. I'm a scientist. <laughs> <laughs> She's like, I'm so proud. I raised this kid right. Excellent. So, yeah, we want to thank all of our listeners for the responses because they captured a lot of the things that, you know, we didn't because everybody had their own, their own influences and it's great. Um, I actually, before we, we, we wrap up, I wanted to have a little discussion. What, 
of the media that's coming out now, and Kevin, you briefly mentioned it with Avatar, but kind of the new crop of books and TV shows and movies, what makes you happy that kids today are influenced by? Like, which ones do you like and think, oh, it's great that, you know, the new generations have this to be there? They're influencing. I can start off by showing what I mean. I mean, Harry Potter, everybody knows, but the other big book series that I really like and I'm glad the kids today have would be Lemony Snicket's A Series of Unfortunate Events. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm really glad that um, the kids of kind of the early 2000s had those growing up because I think they teach a lot of great lessons and are also really fun to read. Yep. Great lessons that include not only vocabulary. But it's also vocabulary. Yeah. But also things like, look, shit happens. It happens to everybody. Mm-hmm. And sometimes there's nothing you can do about it. You just keep going. I really like the uh, uh, the the Olympus series, uh, Camp Halfbreed. Oh, Percy Jackson, right? Those Percy are... Jackson, yes. Um, because getting people interested in Greek myths and with his later series on Egyptian myths, um, oh, where the fuck am I going with this? Um, I know where I'm going with this, I just need the words. That it introduces kids to mythology <laughs> yeah, of the world? Yeah, it introduces kids to mythology, and it's a little bit like, here's a Wikipedia article with a bunch of links in it, and it just gets you going and interested in two different things. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying. Yeah. How about you, Kevin? Anything other than Avatar you're glad kids today have? Um, well, uh, actually, a lot of the cartoons that are currently on. Uh, Adventure Time is huge for kids, and I haven't really watched <laughs> so all that much, much of it, but what, uh, <laughs> so but what little fun. of it I have watched is just really making me glad that it's there for kids. I mean, yeah, people our age can watch it because, like, haha, it's stoner humor. But no, it's got uh, really great feminism and uh, just amazing characters and uh, consequences for actions. And uh, the fact that it's set in the nuclear apocalypse uh, after all of us have died, that in and of itself is kind of uh, great that uh, that's available for kids. Um uh, just you know, a lot of stuff that's on right now is really good for kids. Um, I hesitate to bring up the Pony Show <laughs> because of very. Okay, you reasons. can only mention it one more time because if it's three times and they show up. <laughs> uh, I understand that, that, that that's why I did not invoke its name. Yeah, constant um, vigilance. <laughs> Uh, it's really great for little girls to watch. Yeah, I really do believe so. And it, the, the the fact that it's got strong writing, strong characters, and that the fact that it's appealing beyond its demographic is good. What that beyond its demographic is something that I is is best left alone at the moment. But yeah, uh, and, and it, I mean other stuff. Uh, and the stuff that keeps getting canceled because TV executives don't like the fact that girls are watching it. Um, but that's another rant altogether. <laughs> that's uh, another Green Lantern, mm-hmm. Young Justice, uh, the, the the various new Batman cartoons that are actually really good and then keep getting canceled because girls are watching it. 
and 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 the fact that that's actually a quoted response from the executives just pisses me off to no end because i've 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 gone on this rant multiple times before but you um you know who shares things girls uh, and i'm preaching the choir here with this mm-hmm. group here but in general i mean every almost everything that i'm into now and everything that i was into in the past uh, about 98% of that was shared to me by a girl in my life who loved it and wanted to share it with me. Um, the few guys that shared things with it uh, with me um, brought it to me more of like a, hey, look at this from a little a more analytical perspective. But mm-hmm. all the girls, all the girls were just like, I love this. You're going to love this. Let's love this together. Uh, my mom, as I've spent this entire episode explaining uh my wife from day one uh of of me even meeting her was sharing uh great books and stuff with me yes yes hi Hi, lore they say hi lore (laughs) (laughs) um but like uh, who got me into horror uh dana who got me into anime uh a friend of mine that I've known since second grade, Melissa. Uh, just, just girls love things, in my experience at least, love things harder than guys do and share it more than guys do. And I don't know why people in general don't understand that and don't want to capitalize that because you have ready-made uh, promotional machines already doing this stuff for free <laughs> all over so it's just it blows my mind uh that 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 it's it's being looked down upon that girls are watching young justice so we got to cancel it because that's not the demographic that we want you know who buys the merchandise girls boys don't really go out and say i like this stuff i'm gonna go buy it they may say they may say it to their parents like younger boys may say hey can i have these toys older boys don't do that Girls of all ages do that. All ages. Exactly. Who runs the fandom? Girls. I kind of wonder if live action TV in some ways gets that more than cartoon like for kids TV execs. Because let's face it, Steve Amell's abs and arrow are not there for the heterosexual male. There, there are a lot of the live action shows that know exactly what their demographic are, and even if, or if they don't know what their demographic uh, is in the beginning, they become aware of the demographic and then move accordingly, like Supernatural. Mm-hmm. That those those people became very quickly aware what their demographic ended up being, and at this point in time, is a show that knows exactly who it's catering to. Mm-hmm. You know, so, I would love to see a statistical analysis of, like, the gender breakdown of fans of Hannibal. Because I actually suspect, like, I don't know if it's just my experience of, you know, mo- online, like, all of these fans that I know most of them are women, but I wonder if that's actually true of the wider fandom as well. It, it's certainly something that Fuller has said that once they, that he's not surprised that the demographic that's most into the show are well-read young women. Mm-hmm. I mean, that is a thing he has said. He is, he is one of those showrunners that completely understands 
his audience and his fan base. And I think that he doesn't, he doesn't cater to us, but he realizes that what we want is what he's giving us. <laughs> he's fully aware of what he's doing. But, uh, but yeah. uh, another thing is that, I mean, you, you guys know that's always been the case for yes. yeah. everything he created. I mean, who made sure that Star Trek got greenlit? Lucille Ball. Lucille Ball. Mm-hmm. Uh, who made sure that uh, it stayed on the air? The, uh, uh, the the women who were writing all those fan magazines. Yeah. Who created slash fan fiction? Women who were uh, watching Star Trek. Yep. Fandom and geekery has always been for everybody. And in 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 my experience. Uh, guys don't like to share things, and so they they do everything they can to make it, it everything all about them, and they push the women out. That's how it's been for a lot of things. That's how it was a lot in the '80s and '90s, where you had the uh, uh, stereotypical computer geek uh, was you know seen as a uh, socially awkward man. But who were the first computer programmers? Women. My it mom. Was women's work. <laughs> It was it was it was it was considered women's work until men started doing. This is actually true. It, mm-hmm. until men Ada Lovelace, Byron's jobs. daughter, which is most it's it's fascinating thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Um, men started being computer programmers, and they didn't want to be seen doing women's work, so they were like, "No, this is this is a man's world," and they forced all the women out. Yeah. But uh, but again, who shares everything? Women do. Guys. Uh, go on and say, hey, look, that was awesome last night. Let's go talk about something else. Women will continue talking about it and discussing it and picking it apart and go out and buy the merchandise. This is, this is just common sense. <laughs> Here's my favorite his- historical sorry, instance <laughs> of uh, <laughs> women and fanfic. When Shakespeare wrote his uh, Henry IV parts, uh, you know, one and two histories, um, Elizabeth II was the one who said, hmm, I'd love to see a story in which false stuff is in love. But, I mean, she was the queen. She didn't have to write her own fanfic. She got the author to write the fanfic for her. <laughs> and thus, the, the first, sorry, sorry, first. Um, and thus the Merry Wives of Windsor was, were born. <laughs> Do you know who the, uh, the world's biggest Doctor Who fan is? Queen Elizabeth. That's right. Oh, yeah. didn't she threaten to fire, or she actually fired the B- the head of BBC who like canned well, it the first time around, or something like that? Oh, she refused she to knight him. Fire him, but she's, uh, she refused to knight him. And That's right. The only head of the BBC that has not been knighted. That is such an awesome story. Well done, so. Liz. Too. Well done. <laughs> they did have uh, for the, the anniversary of Doctor Who. They had a sort of a celebratory drinks um, session at Buckingham Palace, and they brought a Dalek. <laughs> nice. I don't know if Queen Elizabeth was actually there. I think she sent one of the one of the younger ones along, but I, I do enjoy the idea of her having a drink with a Dalek. <laughs> so I actually have a request for our listeners. Uh, we haven't talked about manga and anime. Kevin only just briefly mentioned it. I really got into it when I moved to Canada at the age of 13. Um, I'll just throw out one of my early influences, and that was Fushigi Yugi. But I'd love for any other listeners who were really into manga and anime, uh, if you leave comments, please tell me which ones you loved as, you know, young teens or kids. And it's okay if it's Sailor Moon. We all have our gateway. 
Dragon so, Ball Z and Sailor Moon, you gotta respect your roots. Yeah, you gotta respect... It was on for us at the time. You gotta, yeah, it, it, it was absolutely. Pokemon it was the gateway. <laughs> I guess if you want to talk about the big fad of my youth, it was probably Pokemon. Yeah. That, that used, hit my youth hard. I used to watch Transformers every morning when I was really little, but uh, I used to watch He-Man and She-Ra uh, yep. even more. Yep. After, and She-Ra was so much better than He-Man. After I... I kind of grew out of my Cinderella phase. I then moved into He-Man and She-Ra and Transformers. <laughs> in Russia in the mid-90s, uh, we had the Saturday morning Western cartoons. I think it was Saturday morning. So we had uh, Tailspin and DuckTales. Oh, so those yes. like Disney ones. <laughs> that, whole, that whole block of Disney. Yeah. Tailspin, DuckTales, Darkwing Duck. Yes. Rescue uh, Rangers was a bit before yes! that, but uh, that was part of it. Gummy Bears, yep. which um, Gummy Bears, interestingly enough, oh, I love Gummy Bears. Influence of gargoyles. Yeah, um, I could see it. <laughs> Greg Wiseman goes on and on about. Guys, it. I have a really funny story about this. To this day, my mother, when she sees a chipmunk, I don't think she knows the English word for chipmunk. She calls it Chippendale. Aww. <laughs> Aww. <laughs> when I was also means something totally different. Yeah. I know. <laughs> <laughs> That's cute. But um, I... Monterey Jack was uh, voiced by uh, Optimus Prime. That was that always blew my mind. <laughs> my so. seventh grade science teacher, at one point, walked into class, looked around, and said, "I want to try something." And we all looked at him, and he said, "Ducktales," and two a one, every single one of us went, "Woo!" <laughs> one of those. One of those. Uh, uh, Sociological experiments. It's like it's like playing, it's it, it, it's like playing Bohemian Rhapsody, um, at a concert and watching the entire audience at the at the moment, and everybody knows the moment to start headbanging. Yep, yep. And then, then like months later, we had uh, an assembly in the auditorium with the entire school, and he. It was completely unrelated, and he walked out on stage and picked up the microphone and did it again. <laughs> it was amazing. <laughs> uh, Ninja yeah. Turtles. Mm. I had every single one of those toys. Every single one. I had every Which single one of the Ninja Turtles. Oh, I had. I didn't like the ones where they turned into other things. No, no, no. Which, which turtle was your favorite? Oh, turtle? Michelangelo, easily. Oh. <laughs> easily. Michelangelo was, was, like, everyone's favorite, so I very stubbornly made Raphael my favorite. All right, Donatello <laughs> was, was, was my uh, runner-up. <laughs> yeah, you got the science, the, the science guy. <laughs> what about Ghostbusters? Uh, that was kind of our generation. Because do you guys remember there was a cartoon... When there we was were cartoon in mid-teens, my, my wife, uh, while we were still dating, um, for my birthday, I believe, was it my birthday or Christmas? I, I that's really sweet. Um, yes, sorry. <laughs> uh, for either my birthday or Christmas, she got me uh, the first season of the real Ghostbusters on DVD, and because we'd both watched that. Um, and uh, written, and I was surprised to find out, by J. Michael Straczynski, he of... Uh, Babylon 5. Babylon 5 and, and the good runs of Spider-Man. Yeah, all the comics. 
Um, and uh, yeah, she 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 and I share a lot of a lot of things from from our childhood like that. Uh, Ghostbusters is definitely one of them. <laughs> yeah, my husband had me read David Eddings, The Bulgariad. <laughs> I finally read that the the uh, a couple years ago. Oh, you haven't before. How do how do you like? How does it hold up when you're an adult? Uh, I really liked it. Yeah, no, I should reread really them. Really Those are. Um, um, I'm trying to find that video that was going around Tumblr earlier this week of the the 50 years of fandom set to We Didn't Start the Fire. Oh yeah, Billy Joel. <laughs> We'll we'll link it in the show notes because we'll link it in the show notes. Like every I've watched it a couple of times, and every time I just like all of the feels, all of the feels, nostalgia tears running down my face. It starts with old school original series Star Trek, and just goes on to everything that people have had a fandom. Like not everything, everything because it is only a four minute song, (laughs) but a lot. But a lot, and it's in generally chronological order, so you kind of go from, oh, yeah, I remember hearing about this, to, oh, my God, this is where I came in. <laughs> yeah, like Stargate as you want and Farscape and all the things that give you feels. Yep. And it's it's really well mashed, matched up to the song as well. Uh, one last thing I want to mention, um, because Kaylee brought up Pokemon as kind of her generation's big thing, but uh, this reminded me of a um, a, tum- a little webcomic I saw on Tumblr, which was like, what's cool when you're a kid and you're all about Pokemon, and then as a teenager, you're, you know, you're too cool for Pokemon, but then you're back in college and everybody just wants to trade their Pokemon again. <laughs> Is these games are still around, and it's it's kind of nice that actually a, a lot of what we loved is, you know, I guess as we grow up, and um, this might this usually comes up I see in discussion of comics how the fans have now become the show the runners, you know, the what people who write the comics, but I think it's kind of true for a lot of fandom. I think a lot of what we loved Current is still around, movie. yeah, still around. Wreck-It Ralph, Wreck-It Ralph, and the new uh, the the new Muppets movie were the ones where were the two movies. Of a couple years ago, I wrote, I wrote this down somewhere that made me realize that um, when we were kids, mm-hmm. uh, the people who were uh, writing the Disney movies um, for the, the the Golden Age Disney Renaissance that started with The Little Mermaid in 1989, um, that they were writing the movies, knowing that parents were also bringing those kids to the movies and writing things for the parents. And when I went to go see the new Muppets movie and Wreck-It Ralph, I realized that we had become those parents and we had become those writers writing to writing for us, the writing for our generation and for our generation to share with our kids. Mm-hmm. And that's that's true with comics and there's sometimes there's issues with, you know, comics fans becoming comics writers and that's kind of currently what's going on with DC. Uh, but again, that's an entirely different conversation. <laughs> also, that's one of the things that's making me very hopeful for our, this new generation in terms of their entertainment is the fact that there is now a new Disney Renaissance taking place. It is a new Disney from, Renaissance. It's between, the, the, the yeah. second Disney Renaissance. Well, between, you know, from Princess and the Frog to Tangled to now Frozen, which has become basically their biggest film ever, you, you, you see this 
the sort of the same classical style in terms of doing the princess musical, but they now have it updated so that these girls can have a very interesting role model. Oh, I think they can have some role models with a lot of the other princesses as well. I think a lot of them get a bad rap. But it's interesting to see them taking the sort of, a, you know, deviating from that, the story and norm, uh, norms of the tropes that they've used so often with something like Frozen, which takes it, much, it's much more about those sisters than it is about anything romance-based. And I was so worried for that movie, and I love the fact that it wasn't bad. Frozen like a... was problematic for other reasons, but not for that reason. Yes. And I'm also going to include Brave in that, not just out of patriotism, but because it is the first time that they did a princess movie where there was no prince or love interest at all. Mm-hmm. And for the issues that but that, that movie Pixar, does have. So I don't know if that counts. Well, it's because she's now part of the princess line. You can go in and buy the dolls. So. Oh, good. But admit it, it is a little bit out of uh, out of patriotism. Just a bit. Right. <laughs> as long as we're all being honest. Oh, oh. Speaking of Scottish patriotism, um, and geeky pursuits, one last thing: How big was Highlander in the actually in actual Scotland? Oh, this is this. For my time, but it is one of those films that has a lot of love. I think that. What about the TV show? I don't remember ever having a TV show. Oh, on, but it's now on one of like the really weird, obscure satellite horror channels, and you can watch that. I love that TV show. I love nineties TV. Again, my mom used to watch that. Oh yeah, absolutely. I cannot listen to a Queen album without yeah. thinking of that when that comes on. Yeah. Oh yeah. I mean, I am hugely inspired just by the Queen album for that movie. Forget anything else. <laughs> but it's it's always really fascinating to watch stuff. Especially when you're younger, as to how people perceive you in terms of your nationality. Because there was a lot when I was growing up of very twee Highland, you know, jumping around to kill Okai wearing Scots. So Highlander was a good inversion of that, although we don't talk about the quickening. Yeah, no one one talks about the quickening. We will talk about that when we figure out what the hell is going on. Highlander 2 is one of those movies that does not exist, just like Star Trek 5. No, I think the quickening is like. Is that the second one? There's also, like, the very last TV movie that nobody's seen and no one talks about. Oh, the That was apparently... Yeah. Oh, that's what it was I called. I actually saw that. Yeah. And that's... No one talks about that either. <laughs> the odd number movies are not awful. <laughs> All right. So these are the things that made us who we are and brought ultimately brought this podcast to you. Basically, it's all thanks to Kevin's mom. Yep. Yes. <laughs> Actually, Native Fail is probably uh, a derivative of, of uh, my mother, so... So, there we there go. You go. We're, extension. were it not for Kevin's mother, we would not be here. So, we appreciate you, Kevin's mom. Thank you, Kevin's mom. Thank okay. you, appreci- just, <laughs> just as we appreciate all of our moms. Hi, Mom. And... And all the brothers. Thanks, Alec. We should just keep that in. <laughs> we should, although we do have lore. So. Yeah, we had a guest star this episode. Yes. <laughs> and it's I think okay. I know some... the forward commute button is. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's going to be less fun now. <laughs> um, oh, did we want to read our fan mail? Or yes, we have part? some. We have, we have fan mail. Um. This is from David, who came in from A Matter of Taste, and his letter is very, very long. Um, So, (laughs) (laughs) it's really quite long. um, David, who was very eloquent. 
but yeah. not very succinct. Yeah. <laughs> Which we love because That's okay. That's okay. We're we're not judging. But we ever be maybe... succinct. We've got no room to judge. Yeah. <laughs> maybe read a bit about uh his suggestion for a future episode. Let's see how many other readers listeners would be into it. Um I mean, for, he says that he has enjoyed our episodes with Clelinda very much, and he Except. loved the Sherlock Holmes episode as well, although he thought that the the Jeremy Brett segment was a bit too short, um, which I think is probably a cause of us not having watched it recently. Yeah. <laughs> um, and that one of his favorite Sherlock Holmes short stories is The Dancing Men, and the Granada episode's adaptation of that was great as well. Um, would it be possible for there to be a future episode about spy literature and its screen adaptations? Be excited to hear what the ladies have to say about Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy and its 1979 BBC mini starring Sir Alec Guinness, um, as well as the Smiley's People miniseries. It stars two Bond villains. And a very youthful-looking Alan Rickman. Sold! Also, there's an audiobook of Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy available, and it's read by a Michael Jaston, i.e. the guy who played Peter Gilliam in the miniseries. And then there's the recent film adaptation. Yep. Um, and he also <laughs> says uh, that I should stop talking about my boring accent, which is probably not going to happen. <laughs> and that he relates to Alina's accent the most. You can talk about my boring accent flat Midwest. Come on. Well, that's what mine is, too. It's flat Midwest. Minnesota. <laughs> and that he's sure that our comment section will regrow since we had to nuke and salt it. <laughs> I did what I could. Yeah. Um, thanks for the email, David. And yeah, I think we... I, I we're... think there could be a, a spy movie episode in the future. You know what? Um, there's a new Bond movie coming out fairly soon. Well, if it's not soon enough, we'll do it sooner. But if there's one soon, that would be probably good timing for it. Yeah. Have we started filming that yet? Because I know that Penelope Cruz is supposed to be the, the Bond girl. Oh, is she? We'll see. We'll we'll find a time and a place okay. for it. it. It'll happen in the future. We're not yeah. promising when in the future because I have no idea where my magic eight ball is. <laughs> we have opinions about Bond. <laughs> it might also be a good episode in which to talk uh, to you know for us all to try out that um, TV show, The Americans. Yep. And maybe see what we think about that. I'm sure I'll have opinions as I always do when Russia crops up on American TV. <laughs> yes. All right. So thanks very much for the reader mail, and um, looking forward to all the new comments. Keep commenting, people. And thanks for all the Twitter responses to uh, about this week's topic. Really appreciated them. Yep. And you can always email us at anglofees at gmail dot com. You can follow us on Tumblr at anglofees dot tumblr dot com. And follow us on Twitter at Anglofees. Um, and on our webpage, you can find our Twitters and our Tumblrs and stuff like that. Yay! And thank you, Kevin, for being here. It was great to finally get you on the show. 
Oh, thank you. Th- thank you for inviting me. You're now officially an Anglo Garçon. Congratulations. <laughs> Excellent. I add that to my many, many, many titles. <laughs> Kevin, he starts things. Ah, uh, yes. Starter of things. Starter of things. Yeah. And then Professional those things... things starting consultant. Yeah. And then those things start other things. Yes. Which I'm, I'm very, very proud. Uh, just, just as, as uh, one of the original uh, Made of Fail people, I just always love the fact that, you know, our listeners come together and then they start doing awesome things and then uh, ask us to promote them and then and and here we have you guys and that's uh, always very happy to hear that you guys are probably now more competent than we ever were so oh wow (laughs) (laughs) that's a nice feeling yeah (laughs) who runs the world girls Damn right. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So this has been episode 18. And we are signing off. Bye. Bye. Kevin, you have to say bye. Oh, good night, everybody. You have been listening to Anglophies, a made of fail production.